0: This program program is made possible by a grant to Utah Humanities as part of the Pulitzer Prize Centennial Campfires Initiative, a joint venture of the Pulitzer Prize Board and the Federation of State Humanities Council in celebration of the 2016 Centennial of the Prizes. The initiative seeks to illuminate the impact of journalism and humanities on American life today, to imagine their future, and to inspire new generations to consider the values represented by the body of Pulitzer Prize-winning work. This year-long project in Utah is a collaboration between Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, Utah Public Radio, and KCPW. The Campfire's initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Carnegie Corporation of New York, and the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Pulitzer Prizes Board, and Columbia University. Welcome to Access
1: Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today, we're going to talk about the art and cultural impact of political cartoons, We'll be talking with Salt Lake Tribune's Pat Bagley, Politico's Matt Worker, and Jen Sorensen, whose comics appear nationally and locally in the Salt Lake City Weekly. Worker is winner of the Pulitzer Prize, Bagley is a Pulitzer uh, finalist, Sorensen's winner of several awards, including the Herblock Prize. We're going to talk about Charlie Ebdo, Bagley's cartoon legislators, Sorensen's Trump Girls Trials cartoon, current events from a cartoonist perspective, and much more. And as you just heard there, the this episode is part of the Pulitzer Prize Centennial Campfires Initiative. We welcome uh, to the program uh, Pat Bagley. Thanks for joining us.
2: Oh, good to be here.
1: And uh, we welcome in uh, Jen Sorensen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, Matt Worker. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Tom. Uh, so let me start with uh, Pat Bagley. Um, and by the way, I should mention uh, there's some uh, Pat Bagley events. You're, uh, you're you're getting all famous here, Pat. Uh, evening with Pat Bagley on uh, February 3rd, uh, tomorrow, 7 p.m. at the Leonardo. This is a part of the Campfires Initiative, and uh, you'll be uh, there with Jennifer Napier-Pierce from the Tribune to discuss favorite cartoons, the artistic process, and uh, recognition as a Pulitzer finalist. And I understand you have a, an exhibit at the Leonardo as well. That's uh, some, some good recognition for you.
2: Yeah, that's right. I've got about 30 cartoons that are up. Uh, Some are from early in my career, and they go to the current cartoons, and there are a lot of cartoons they submitted for this latest uh, Pulitzer Prize.
1: I understand you're, uh, you're once again having, or you did, I'm not sure if it's ongoing, having readers help you select those that you're submitting.
2: Yeah, we had a bunch of cartoons that we put online, and readers were able to go through and you know uh, indicate which ones they liked the best from last year, and um, there were about 35 cartoons that we put up there, and, and when you uh, apply for the Pulitzer, you have to winnow it down to your best 20 from the past year. And, you know, you get down to about 30 of what you think is your best, and it does help to have another set of eyes on it. So I had a whole—the you know, whole readership was able to contribute to, uh, you know, helping me decide which ones to send in.
1: What did, what did you learn from that? What uh, Were there themes that people especially liked?
2: Well, generally, they kind of fell in line with what I thought were some of my better cartoons. There were a few that surprised me and kind of made me think of, again about which ones I was going to use. Um, uh, there were not a lot of local cartoons because the Pulitzer judges, you know, don't really understand Utah humor. Uh, so it was kind of heavily into the the national and international kinds of uh, cartoons.
1: hmm yeah, I guess Utah's in many ways unique, so that that...
2: Oh, yes it is. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: <laughs> so if the judges don't understand the Utah situation or humor, I guess that'd be a disadvantage.
2: Yeah. You know, when they say that they are fine with local things and you can send in an explanation of, you know, why this cartoon is funny or why it's relevant, but if you have to do that, you've already lost. So yeah. I, I pretty much confined it to um, national cartoons.
1: I should mention uh, Pat Bagley is coming to Utah State University as well, part of the uh, Morris Media and Society Lecture Series. And that is February 9th at noon, Merrill Kazir Library, Room 101, on the campus of uh, Utah State uh, University. Let me turn next to uh, Jen Sorensen. I want to ask all of you, I'll, I'll start with you, uh, Jen Sorensen, uh, what do you see uh, your role as a writer of uh, comics? Uh, I should mention on your website, Jen Sorensen dot com you you describe yourself as cartoonist writer and cultural panopticon I don't even know what that means
3: <laughs> a lot of people uh pick up on that the cultural panopticon part um it's sort of a, a joke but um you know i i guess it is kind of a reference to my you know i, I guess my cartoons are a little uh, untraditional in the sense that um i do address you know very uh you know mainstream political topics and headline news but I also like to take a step back and address broader cultural issues as well um, I, I, you know it all kind of goes back to the saying that the personal is political and so um, you know I, being an all-weekly cartoonist uh, you know I, I guess I have a little bit more freedom to address trends in pop culture and but you know, lately it's just been, it's been about the elections and and flint and you know the same things that other people are talking about
1: Are there times when the when when there's just so much rich material coming out of current events that that's that's where you go and others where you had the other direction?
3: Yes, absolutely. And you know, in in a way I think it's it's almost easier to just focus on current events because there's always new material there. And um, you know, sometimes it seems like the culture doesn't change quite as quickly. So uh you know, I would say more often than not, I'm I'm dealing with the same news issues that everyone else is doing.
1: Hmm. Um, I'll bring this in right now. Um, I think there are not an incredible number of of women in this field. Is that changing? Is that growing? Is that? What do you think about that?
3: Well, um, you know, it, it's strange because in other genres of cartooning we've seen incredible growth of women cartoonists, um, you know, in in web comics and graphic novels. And, uh, you know, I would say that we've maybe almost achieved gender parity in in some of those other genres, but, um, you know, political cartooning, uh, just in general, I think is, you know, not attracting huge numbers of, of younger people. Um, And so, you know, I, I, I I think some of the industry challenges challenges are contributing to that, Um, but, uh, you know, I I guess, I I don't know, I was sort of a tomboy growing up, and (laughs) I I like Mad Magazine, and uh, I didn't really think twice about it, and, and, um, you know, I, I, so, there are some other great women cartoonists out there, like Signe Wilkinson and Ann Telnes, and, you know, so uh, there are some, but uh, there's just, it is a small number of us.
1: Mm -hmm and you i assume you would say there's a there's a perspective um that that comes maybe from women cartoonists that maybe would be lost um,
3: yeah you know like i wouldn't i wouldn't say that there's a you know a monolithic women's perspective but i think that you you know being a female cartoonist you do have maybe more awareness of certain issues you know um you're just uh, you're you're going to notice certain things possibly that uh You know, other cartoonists might not, and so um, certainly there. I believe there is an added perspective.
1: Let me turn to Matt. I like to do cartoons about gender. Sometimes about gender, yeah, yeah. Um, I'll I'll have you talk about uh, there's (laughs) one just really struck me. I'll have you talk about a little later the uh, the Trump girls tryouts. Uh, This is, I think, based on a real. You have a link to a you know real thing here. Let me turn to uh, Matt Worker. I want to ask you, uh, what do you see your role as, as being? Of course, you you read one of your cartoons. You want people to laugh, right? Uh, educate people. What uh, what are you trying to do?
4: Um, well, well, Tom, I uh, I aim to be a, a shimmering tower of transcendent <laughs> enlightenment most of the time, and Good. I'm setting out Good. to save American civilization. Excellent. And uh, you know, some people understand that, and some people just miss it. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but uh no i mean seriously we are uh we are sort of the graphic equivalent of newspaper columnists i mean i think most editorial cartoonists would uh, we're different than gag cartoonists or strip cartoonists in that we were part of a political conversation you find our work on editorial pages and opinion sections and um you know we may be wrapping it up in a silly picture with a bad pun or something like that but we're 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 we're, we're trying to weigh in on weighty issues and ideally doing it without trivializing them too much.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Pat Bagley, I want to ask you the same question. What's uh, what's your role? What do you see your role as?
2: Uh, well, there are three things that uh, I, I, I think a cartoonist is supposed to do. One is to educate, you know, through the cartoon. Um, another is to persuade, you know, people to your point of view. And probably the least important, but, you know, one that Definitely as part of it is to entertain, you know, people turn to the editorial page to look at the cartoon um, uh, uh, because it's fun. Um,
1: I'll bring this in right now. I was going to mention this sometime during the program. Uh, Sometimes, and this is, uh, until I saw this cartoon, uh, I didn't realize or recognize that this could be the role of a cartoonist, but... Summing up a, a community's feelings, and sometimes a, an appointed event, I'm looking at a cartoon of yours, Pat Bagley, um, that, that just really struck me. And in fact, my sister had it framed. I got it in my office. Uh, this is uh, in the aftermath of the Elizabeth Smart, um, you know, kidnapping. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. and of course the, the whole community was 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 you know involved in that at least emotionally, and then so joyful when she was recovered, and. Uh, and, and your cartoon is a representation of a famous photograph. Um, Elizabeth Smart's mud, mother and Elizabeth Smart, um, you know, reunited and heading toward the car, I think. This is in black and white. Uh, you have one color item. It's a blue ribbon in Elizabeth Smart's hair. And then you have an Emily Dickinson uh, quote there.
2: Yeah, so Hope is a thing with feathers. Yes. And I, I put a few lines of it in there. And, um yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I I can, I don't have to be snarky in my cartoons. You know, I, I can be, um, uh, you know, sort of, there are cartoons with feeling that I occasionally put out there.
1: Uh, it, of course, if you were to do that every day, you know, that might be, you know, I think people want the, the humor and the and the, the snark from time, you know.
2: Oh, yeah. The I majority mean,
1: of the time, probably. If you, if you do,
2: yeah, you, you can you can kind of go some cartoonists go go overboard on the treacly stuff. Um, and you know, you've seen those kind of, kind of cartoons where there is the statue of liberty, lady liberty, you know, crying and and you know, I <laughs> that works, you know, sometimes, but that kind of cartooning if you did it too much is just it's just too
1: much. Mm-hmm. I want to ask each of you about some specific cartoons. I'll start with this with Pat Bagley. Um, you've developed a, an iconic state legislator. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about how that happened and, uh, and what you're saying there.
2: Oh, you know, I went up to the legislature, and I noticed that all these people kind of had a certain look to them. Um, and it was that well-fed Nordic look, you know, a little overweight, a little <laughs> chubby, uh, probably a little balding on top. And you know, over the years, this little character eventually evolved into you know the one that you recognize now. He's got the big lips, and um, he's kind of plump. And uh, and the great thing about that character is, I can put him in a cartoon, and people know immediately who I'm talking about. I, I don't have to write the legislature on him, you know, which is really hard to do because it's a long word, and and so this character kind of fits the bill.
1: Um, and uh, sometimes that legislator is uh, packing heat, carrying a gun, for example. You're, you're oh, able to. Oh, he's always packing yeah. heat.
2: They're always <laughs> packing heat. <laughs> well, I've got to tell you, the last time I spoke to, uh, it was the hospitality group here in Salt Lake City, but they invited. Oh, but half of the legislature, and all i got to say is it was a tough crowd. They didn't think it was very funny. <laughs> oh, really? <They> did. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I mm-hmm. thought, man, you know, laugh at yourselves, but uh-uh, uh-uh, yeah. they we're not having it.
1: Uh, one of your recent cartoons uh, features that legislator. It's things that prefer the dark. You have uh, Dracula, you've got a robber, you've got a cockroach, and then and then a legislator. You're you're referring to uh, the closed cocks, especially the Republican side.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, the Republicans here have got a supermajority. I I think eighty percent of the legislators are Republican, and so they have their caucuses. It's a closed-door caucus, and they can actually decide which laws are going to pass and the wording of the laws without any public input. Um, And that's pretty outrageous. And they prefer it that way. They don't want they don't want people to know what's going to happen before before it happens.
1: Let's take a break, and when we come back, I want to talk with uh, some specific car- cartoons with uh, Jen Sorensen and Matt Worker. Um, there's, there's a rich vein with Donald Trump, um, and and some other cartoons. Flint, of course, has, has been much in the news. Some uh, some very impactful cartoons from both of those cartoonists. We're talking about political or editorial cartoons uh, on the program today, and we're opening the phone lines now. If you would like to uh, interact with our uh, guests, uh, who uh, have joined us today, uh, editorial cartoonists uh, from political Matt Worker, Jen Sorensen, whose uh, comics appear in the Salt Lake City Weekly uh, uh, here in Utah, and nationally, of course, and Salt Lake Tribune's Pat Bagley. The number is 1-800-826-1495, 826 1495 and uh, the email is upraxcess at gmail.com. More following the break. I'm Jeremy Hobson. We'll have the latest reaction to the Iowa results as the race shapes up for the next stop, New Hampshire. Plus, have you ever eaten a bug? It's the new healthy snack for some at a fancy food festival in San Francisco. We'll sample the menu. That's next time on Here and Now.
0: Join us Tuesday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. This program is made possible by a grant to Utah Humanities as part of the Pulitzer Prize Centennial Campfires Initiative, a joint venture of the Pulitzer Prize Board and the Federation of State Humanities Council in celebration of the 2016 Centennial of the Prizes. The initiative seeks to illuminate the impact of journalism and humanities on American life today, to imagine their future and to inspire new generations to consider the values represented by the body of Pulitzer Prize winning work. This year-long project in Utah is a collaboration between Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, Utah Public Radio, and KCPW. The Campfires Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Carnegie Corporation of New York, and the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Pulitzer Prizes Board, and Columbia University.
1: Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about the art and cultural impact of political or editorial cartoons. We're talking with Politico's Matt Worker, Jen Sorensen, whose comics appear nationally and in Utah in the Salt Lake City Weekly, and with Salt Lake Tribune's Pat Bagley. This episode of the program is part of the Pulitzer Prize Centennial Campfires Initiative. I want to mention that uh, there's an evening with Pat Bagley, if you'd like to to join up with him, interact with him in person. That is tomorrow evening, February 3rd, 7 p.m. at the Leonardo in Salt Lake City, and... uh you can get more information at that at sltrib.com eveningwithbagley. Uh, Pat Bagley will also be on the Utah State University campus on February 9th at noon. Merrill-Kazir Library, Room 1. This will be part of the Morris Media and Society Lecture Series sponsored by the Department of Journalism and Communication at Utah State University. You can join the conversation here at 1-800-826-1495 or by email to upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. I want to talk uh, about uh, a very recent event and some very impactful uh, cartoons that have appeared. I'll start with Matt Worker on this. Uh, this has gotten a lot of play, Matt Worker. This is your cartoon about uh, Flint. I wonder if you describe this uh, for us. Talk about how you came up with this.
4: Uh, I, what I, uh, I'll describe the cartoon first. It's a picture of two drinking fountains. This will probably conjure something for people of a certain vintage. One metal drinking fountain with a sign above it saying white and then a sort of more dilapidated porcelain drinking fountain next to it saying colored, and the water coming out of the colored fountain uh, is uh, sort of a dark, rusty brown. And then the caption underneath it said, Michigan 2016. And um, that's, th- that's a good, this cartoon is a good example of sort of if you manage to get the right combination of things going together, a, qu- a quick visual hit that has some historic resonance and a twist, um, it, it's uh, this is sort of the, this, the strange, unique power of political cartooning. I mean, people process it right away. A lot of the time, the, their response is, is emotional, both sometimes positive and sometimes negative to these kinds of things. I got all sorts of uh, people who were really mad about the cartoon uh, and a lot of people who loved it on social media. And um, it's, uh, uh, it's one that I'm, I'm pretty proud of.
1: Mm. Uh, you you did get a negative comment on it. I've seen a lot of positive comment.
4: No, oh, you get lots of negative. I mm-hmm. mean, it's interesting. And in, in this day and age, you get immediate feedback. I, you know, we put things up on Politico, and Politico will tweet it, and then the, you know, there's I forget. We have a million, uh, literally a million Twitter followers on Politico, and people will immediately jump on it. And usually, the, res- the initial response is generally negative. The people that follow Twitter feeds and are. Sitting around mad about something will dump on you because of the cartoon or whatever. So Mm -hmm. there was a lot of a lot of people were, how dare you bring race into it, and um, you know, unfair, unfair, that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff, and far worse um, in terms of what they responded to the cartoon with. And then a lot of people went, you know, dead on, and um, it's and then it spreads. I mean, and this one spread really quickly. People who like it then retweet it, and you know, you've hit a vein. Uh, when it starts to 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 show up on Twitter from other angles and stuff. Well, I and, get, uh, I, yes, go uh, ahead. Twitter also. And let me just throw in too that Twitter has changed recently, and that you know we we think of it as a hundred and forty character um, medium, but now you can do pics. Mm-hmm. And um, again, there's something about cartoons or these little photo pho- Photoshop memes that people put up that that travel fast on social media because people can process them so quickly and then if they like them they'll flip them forward so they they uh, they spread really rapidly
1: and i'm just guessing that uh, the fact that it is visual makes it perhaps more powerful more visceral more shareable you you if if you were to write an editorial written editorial on this it probably wouldn't get the shares that that an image would
4: not not nearly not nearly you know the old saw about a picture's worth a thousand words uh uh, people will look at the cartoon because they they can get it that you can gronk it and and you know there's psychologists that have studied this stuff and i think it takes about three seconds for people to process a cartoon and they they quote unquote get it and um you know sitting down reading a a thousand word op-ed piece or something takes a long time and most people we have this sort of it's short attention span culture these days and uh, a lot of people won't take the time to read the thousand word essay but they'll look at the cartoon
1: mm-hmm. let me turn to jen Sorensen. Uh, you have a recent cartoon about about flint it's titled if flint's water problem happened to rich people I wonder if first of you describe this uh, this comic
3: Sure. Um, and, yeah, people really responded to this one as well. Uh, I've, I've been pretty impressed by the sort of the, the emotional impact that uh, the comics seemed to have. Um, so basically I just uh, envisioned since you know, it, it, took, it took the governor of Michigan a year and a half to really, you know, start to address the problem in Flint. So I imagined, well, what if this happened to a, like a rich GOP donor? um, you know, obviously he would have, you know, he would have direct access to the governor's office. So he calls up and he's like, hey, my water's brown and stinky. And, um, you know, the next day you've got a truck showing up with, uh, with, with Perrier, basically. I, I actually use my own, my own brand, Pierre's Alpine fizzy water. But, um, anyway, so, so the next day he's got a truckload of water showing up. And then, you know, in the end, the governor shows up at his door. He's like, okay, water's all fixed. And, uh, and the the donor is like you know good work. Here's a campaign contribution. I want you to limit the size of government, and uh, you know. So it it's basically I think uh, this resonated with people because you know they they know I mean inequality is such a huge problem these days, and especially in our political system more than ever, and uh, and yeah yeah people uh, really seem to appreciate this one.
1: Your rich GOP donor has a kind of a a, a tall head, uh, you know. A- a big, big bald dome. I, I kind of like that.
3: Well, I can, I can explain. That is actually a character that I use uh, back from the earliest days when I started my cartoon, even before it was political. Uh, I had this character named Mr. Perkins, who uh, I just use as an actor in different roles. And more and more lately, he seems to play, uh, you know, balding CEOs or, <laughs> or corrupt politicians or, or something like that. But, um, but yeah. You, I, the 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 balding you know the the, the bald look is is always uh, a quick indicator of mm-hmm. like a, a wealthy donor or someone like that.
1: That kind of kind of connects it up with say television. You have a you have this actor who's playing different roles, a, a recurring.
3: Kind of you know there's a, yeah. there's a little bit of sketch comedy in it, in it I guess. Um, you know I, I think when I first started out my cartoon was even more character driven, but I find as I, I became more and more political over the years, uh, it, you know, somewhat less so. It's, it's oh, hard to do with political, yeah. you know, changing political topics.
1: Right, right, yeah. yeah. Except, especially if you have real people, you know, Governor Steiner shows up. Uh, that has okay. to be specifically him. Uh, I want to transition out to talk right now about uh, the, the Trump Girl Tryouts uh, comic. Uh, I'll just read the paragraph. And, and on your website you have some... Uh, I guess some context, and you say, in case you haven 't seen the Freedom Kids performance at the Trump rally, proceed here. you have a link, have a stiff drink ready. Tell me about the Freedom Kids rally first, and then tell me about your cartoon
3: right right uh, so you know descri- describing this trump video uh, you know, the video from the Trump rally over the radio almost doesn 't do it justice it 's one of those things that people have to see and it's uh you know it went, it was going viral on the internet, basically we have uh, you know, there was a, a troop of young girls singing what can only be described as, as somewhat fascist lyrics about crushing our enemies, you know, deal from strength or get crushed every time. And I mean, it was kind of hilarious, uh, you know, this juxtaposition. And so uh, I just came up with a bunch of other girl groups that maybe were, you know, that didn't make the cut, that were uh, trying out for the Trump rally. And so we've got the authoritaritats and, and the Propagandettes. And, and uh, you know, just just a bunch of silly g- girl groups that, uh, you know, singing equally absurd lyrics.
1: Yeah, so you only have to tweak it just a little bit.
3: To... It, yeah, the thing with Trump is it's very hard to satirize him. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he's already a parody of himself. Yeah. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, yeah, just certainly. It's
3: just uh, me having a little fun with uh, with something that really lent itself to humor. I,
1: um, I, I've been talking to to friends of mine who have a lot of angst about a potential President Trump, and I've been telling them that yeah, I I, I understand, but in the media, he'd be a he'd be a gold mine.
3: Right. Well, you know, I, I, as a cartoonist, I mean, he, he definitely presents a lot of material. But uh, you know, I have a lot of people saying, "Oh, isn't this great? You have so much to work with." And honestly, I, I just I, I'd rather have a little less to work with.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead.
4: I mean, don't it really did that. Control, no, because you have to listen
1: to this guy. Some of us are rooting for Trump. Yeah. Oh, some are rooting for Trump to get the material. Yeah.
4: Purely yeah. on car- purely as a as right. a cartoonist,
1: right, not yeah. as a citizen. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, let me turn to Pat Bagley. Uh, I want to talk. Uh, you had a couple of uh, cartoons recently uh, referencing Flint. Uh, you had one that, that uh, sort of made a connection between the the Flint water and and right wing media. Tell me about that one.
2: Oh yeah, that was. Uh, there are two bottles of Flint water ones, got that kind of dirty, you know, rusty color to it, and says Flint H2O, uh, high levels of exposure can lead to impaired cognition, lower IQ, and violent tendance, tend, tendencies. Uh, and then next to it is this right-wing media bottle of water, and it's got the same nasty look to it. And it says ditto. You know, it can lead to impaired cognition, lower IQ, and violent tendencies. Um, you know, and the right-wing media really is... Uh, Just incredible, you know, people I usually I I don't follow it that much, but people Send me these links and I you know go through it and it's just uh, bizarre what is out there Um, And I think that is part of the reason that you do have a Trump and a Cruz is you know people feel that America is really on the brink of Dissolution and the reason they think that way is that Fox News is telling them that things are so horrible you know i like 2 dollar gasoline <laughs> you know i like the fact that our financial system isn't isn't uh disintegrating uh but if you listen to right wing media we are on the brink of of chaos
1: and it's all because of benghazi too it, uh, yeah oh yeah benghazi yeah yeah you hear a lot about that yeah i wonder let me let me start with the matt worker on this one um i i haven't read many and i i do see them out there um are there a lot of conservative editorial cartoonists
4: there are some but you it's it's interesting there's not as many um the the field is dominated by centrist to liberal cartoonists we we run a, a a carousel of cartoons every week in politico and um i run uh michael ramirez and uh mike lester who am i forgetting guys um uh Scott Stannis in Chicago is fairly conservative, but, but they're greatly outnumbered by the liberals and, the, and, and, and centrist cartoonists. Yeah. I mean, there's, a, there's also a, a group of cartoonists that are more, more or less nonpartisan and are doing sort of just jokes on the news or something, and it would you'd be hard-pressed to nail down their political point of view.
1: Uh, wonder, Pat Bagley, and then I'll ask Jen Sorensen this as well. What, why do you think that is? Why, why more liberal? Cartoonists, than uh,
2: Well, I think Matt thinks there. I actually look out there and I do see quite a, quite a few conservative cartoonists. At least more than there used to be. Um, and I think <laughs> part of the reason that you do have a number of liberal cartoonists is that Truth has got a liberal bias. It's just easier to do.
1: Mm. What, what do you think, Jen Sorensen?
3: Well, I think political cartoonists tend to be people you know who, who like to sit in the back of the classroom and kind of you know make fun of things from a, from a distance, and you're sort of on the margins. Um, you know, that's where your your natural habitat is, and you're sort of uh, just, uh, you know, lobbing these jokes from the margins. And so I think just that, that sort of natural positioning of a political cartoonist uh, maybe uh, means you're a little bit outside the status quo and uh, possibly able to see a little more beyond just the status quo. So, uh, uh, you know, I, maybe... Uh, and i think this is true of just artists in general you know you're just you're not quite uh you're not necessarily locked into uh whatever the the dominant you know mainstream ideas are um and also i mean there there is something to be said for the fact that uh it, you know it's it, making fun of figures of authority making fun of the powerful i think has a, just a lot more uh, humor value than be, you know beating up on the poor or <laughs> just you know uh, you know, blaming blaming the powerless. Mm-hmm.
4: I, I think that's a big part of it. I mean, I think especially if you look at Comedy Central and and shows that are you know political use political humor. There's a reason that you don't see very many successful conservative models. Fox actually tried a a Comedy Central style show maybe eight or so years ago, and it failed miserably. And I think it's exactly what Jen's saying. It's sort of it, it's a little tiresome when you're making fun of the downtrodden for not. Solving their issues or something—it's way easier to laugh at the, you know, fat rich guy with the cigar in his mouth or something. Mm-hmm. So, liberal liberal cartoonists have a certain advantage that way.
1: I want to uh, talk about uh, some history, some influences. I noticed Matt Worker in the political—you have, uh, you selected some cartoons, some of them from the, from the far past, and uh, centered on the Iowa caucuses. Uh, you started with one from uh, Puck, and you went through—you know—you you featured uh, Block and. Lukovic and, uh, and some others, uh, that got me thinking, you know, every artist I think has some influences. I'll start with you. What, uh, who are your influences?
4: I'm, I'm anachronistic. I love 19th century cartooning, like that big one in, from Puck that we used in the uh, Gallery of Iowa cartoons. I love the overdrawn, cross-hatched, caricatured, um, colored uh, cartoons and um, i 've been doing that stuff for a long time, and fortunately, I think the technology is now taking us backwards in time and uh, You know Once upon a time, editorial cartoonists worked in bold black lines because they were appearing mostly in on um, crummy newsprint on on dirty presses, and you had to, you couldn 't do anything too refined and Now, the biggest audience for cartoons is online, and people are looking at cartoons on their smartphones with these bright you know colorful screens and so the colorful detailed cartoons have a sort of a, a new life to them um so uh, a lot of my influences are you know like t.s sullivan uh kepler who wasn't puck uh um would be big influences going back to when i was like in high school and ferreting out the books on cartooning mm.
1: you you did go you how, how early did you know you wanted to be a cartoonist
4: um, I knew I, 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 uh, I was lucky in that I was growing up in Los Angeles in the 1960s and 70s, and um, I uh, Paul Conrad was the cartoonist at the L.A. Times at the time. And he uh, has the distinction of being the only cartoonist to have made Nixon's enemies list. So when I was in high school, uh, I was following his work in the L.A. Times, and the idea that you could be sitting around drawing silly pictures that would have an impact like that um, I found very appealing. And so I started pursuing it. I was drawing stuff for my high school paper.
1: Mm -hmm. Now you're doing it. What is, is it, is it what you thought it would be?
4: Uh, boy, that's a good question. I mean, I, I was a freelancer for 25 years and, and then at age 50 became a staff cartoonist, um, at Politico. And, uh, before that I was out peddling individual cartoons sort of on the, on the cartoon marketplace. And, um, uh, it's different. Both of those, both of those paths are different. And these days, there are lots of independent cartoonists who don't have regular staff positions or an outlet like like Pat's with a daily paper with a regular daily audience. But the social media is great at distribution. You can find your own community and build your own readership. So uh, it's it's an interesting time for cartooning. It's the best of times and it's the worst of times. It's. Harder to make a living doing it, and it's the easiest it's ever been to find an
1: audience mm-hmm. because of uh, the distrib- d- digital distribution
4: yeah yeah uh, there's st- i mean there's something still really great i mean Pat's got a great job in that he's got a loyal following that in in a in a, in a, in a local market and um, uh, you know young cartoonists will approach me and they'll they'll be wanting to do stuff that's more nationally focused and when you're starting out, in particular, but even just in general, it's really great to have regular followers who tune in and get sort of your sense of humor and also get the local politics and stuff like that. I follow Pat's stuff on Facebook and everything. He always gets like you know hundreds of comments and hundreds of shares on his cartoons, and um, uh, it's uh, I think it's a function of having that base at the paper, which really
1: helps. Let me turn to Jen Sorensen. The same questions, first of all. Um, influences? Are there cartoonists, comics that you have admired, been influences?
3: Yeah, I, I guess you know, I came from a somewhat different starting point. Um, I guess when I was in college, I, I got into underground comics. And so I, you know, I was reading a lot of R. Crumb and Peter Bagg. And so I started out thinking I would go into comic books and, uh, you know, draw my own sort of underground comic book. And I, I even did put out a comic book right after I graduated from college. But then, you know, at, at, at the time, you know, all, all weeklies were a real growth industry. And I realized that that's sort of where I wanted to be. And um, so I, I launched a weekly strip. And uh, this was right around the time of uh, the, the Bush-Gore election and and uh, September 11th. and so it rapidly became political because, it, I mean, it just felt like uh, talking about anything else was kind of frivolous during those days. And um, so basically I wound up, uh, you know, just getting my start in the alt-weeklies. And, you know, at the time, I guess other, other big influences on me were you know, Matt Groening's uh, Life in Hell. And then, I, you know, I really liked Roz Chest and uh, which is funny because I've actually managed—I've become friends with Roz over, over the past couple of years, and she's a wonderful person. And it's, it's always great when you get to know your heroes, and they're actually cool. And uh, so, anyway, um, so yeah, so basically, uh, you know, I, I guess I came from a, a you know le- less of a single-panel cartoon background than you know sort of a multi-panel uh, format, um, which I find just you know allows me to say. A, a little more, uh, you know. I find it's it's actually really hard to boil things down to one single panel. I kind of admire uh, people who can do that. I, I like having a little more room to uh, to expound on my ideas. And so that's that's basically where I'm, I've been coming from. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, Pat Bagley, the uh, same question to you. Uh, influences?
2: Uh, well, of course, there's Pat Oliphant who came to the United States from Australia, and they had a different sensibility to their cartoons um, before Olafon cartoons used to be fairly heavy-handed. I mean, there'd be a hammer uh, hitting a thumb, and the hammer would be the Soviet Union, and the thumb would be hungry. And you know, you could <laughs> switch the labels. It wasn't very funny. And mm-hmm. Pat Olafon brought a different look entirely. It was uh, a horizontal format, and the stuff was just hilarious. You know, mm-hmm. and it was biting, and it was, and so I've got to say that you know that was definitely one of my influences and. Uh, people my age and Matt's age we also owe a debt of gratitude to Mad Magazine. You know we kind of grew up on that stuff. Um, and most of the cartoonists that I know of our age, uh, you know, were Mad Magazine addicts.
1: Mm-hmm. I wonder about uh, you know, when I think of editorial cartoons, and this didn't appear on the on the editorial page, although there was a controversy at least in Utah whether it should do. And I'm talking about Dunesbury uh gary trudeau was was uh-huh. star with pat Bagley was that did you read that uh growing up was, uh, was, was that an influence
2: uh, oh oh yeah well yeah uh you know I was a little bit older when he started coming out with with his strip and uh I guess it was the first time that a cartoon strip was overtly political uh, and that was a controversy there people didn 't know whether to put it on the comics page or to put it on the editorial page um you know, and sometimes you put it on the comic page and people would get upset and then it would end up on the editorial page.
1: Yeah. Uh, matter, Jen, did you, uh, uh what about Doonesbury? Did you read that? Was that influenced at all?
3: Oh yeah. That's I mean, I'm, a, like I'm a huge Trudeau fan. I, I think, you know, I, I actually read it when I was a kid, although I think I didn't have enough of a frame of reference to, to fully understand it a lot of the time. But then as I got older, uh, I mean, I, you know, I really came to appreciate it. And, um, I love what he's been, do- what he's been doing, and, uh, um, yeah, I, I hope he... I think he has been on a bit of a hiatus for a while, but I think he's coming back at some point. I'm looking forward to that, because I think we need him. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. What about, uh, just thinking about broadening this out, uh, the, um, just so wildly popular, and we don't have him drawing uh, lately, is uh, Gary Larson, because that's not politics, but so, <laughs> but so clever.
4: Yeah, it would be great if Larson came back. He's another one who who disappeared on us, and as as well as uh, Bill Watterson and Calvin and Hobbes, yeah. it would be nice to yeah. to come back. But but they're you know, they're of a slightly different tribe, and that they rarely would touch on on politics. Although Watterson, in the very beginning of his career, uh, was doing editorial cartoons, which were brilliant. But he, uh, fortunately for everybody, decided that Calvin Hobbes was the the thing to
1: pursue. Yeah, it went went philosophical on us, which which was wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Let's take a break when we come back. I want to talk about um, danger to journalists, including cartoonists, and uh, I'm talking about Charlie Hebdo, uh, which has a strong uh, element of uh, cartoons, and it's uh, I think based largely on that that uh, they were, they've been attacked twice, and uh, and some Rogers cartoonists killed. I'll talk about that and and more. Once we come back, we're talking with uh, Salt Lake Tribune's Pat Bagley, Politico's Matt Worker, and Jen Sorensen, uh, whose work appears in Utah in the Salt Lake City Weekly. More following the break. China makes and exports all kinds of things. One thing they don't make for themselves, timber. The
2: problem is that China
1: is a hungry nation in
2: terms of timber. It's got a deficit uh, between its local production and what it needs. And it looks to many countries, including Myanmar, to to get
1: from. I'm Kai Rizdal. Chinese timber, made in, yeah, I don't know. It's next time on
0: Marketplace from APN. Join us Tuesday night at 6:30 on Utah Public Radio. This program is made possible by a grant to Utah Humanities as part of the Pulitzer Prize Centennial Campfires Initiative, a joint venture of the Pulitzer Prize Board and the Federation of State Humanities Council in celebration of the 2016 Centennial of the Prizes. The initiative seeks to illuminate the impact of journalism and humanities on American life today, to imagine their future, and to inspire new generations to consider the values represented by the body of Pulitzer Prize winning work. This year-long project in Utah is a collaboration between Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, Utah Public Radio, and KCPW. The Campfire's initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Carnegie Corporation of New York, and the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Pulitzer Prizes Board, and Columbia University.
1: You're listening to Access Utah. We're talking about the art and cultural impact of political cartoons. We're speaking with Jen Sorensen, whose comics appear nationally. You can read them in Utah in the Salt Lake City Weekly. We're talking with Politico's Matt Worker and with Salt Lake Tribune's Pat Bagley. And uh, there are a couple of, uh, a couple of events uh, coming up with uh, featuring Pat Bagley, so I'll mention those. Uh, there's an evening with Pat Bagley. Uh, He will appear with Jennifer Napier-Pierce from the Tribune to discuss his favorite cartoons and uh, much else. That is tomorrow evening, February 3rd, 7 p.m. at the Leonardo in Salt Lake City. And then on February 9th, he'll be appearing as part of the Morris Media and Society Lecture Series. Uh, sponsored by the Utah State University Department of Journalism and Communication. That event is February 9th at noon, Merrill-Kazir Library Room 101. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We have about eight minutes left in this uh, conversation. Let's uh, get right to an email here. This is from Steve. He says, the cartoonist whom I read most often... Um, because I get so much of my news and entertainment from the internet, don't have regular syndication. These are people such as Tom Tomorrow, Ted Rall, Ruben Bowling, and Keith Knight. I'm wondering if your guests are familiar with the work of these cartoonists and have any thoughts about how they fit in. So well, what
3: those it, are pretty much my colleagues. I'm um, those are all like alt weekly cartoonists. Yeah, and so. Uh, I, I, I'm exactly the same model, basically self-syndicated. Uh, you know, I, I handle all my my clients myself, and uh, you know, appearing in a mixture of all weeklies and and now uh, political websites. Thank goodness there there have been more um, paying websites recently. But um, but yeah, that's my cohort right there. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay. Excellent. Um, let me uh, let me talk to uh, let me talk to the uh, the issue of and what's happened at Charlie Hebdo um of course this is a very serious I guess <laughs> the most serious of feedback um, people dying uh, Charlie Ebdo for people who don't know is a uh, is a weekly in uh, in France uh, I think headquartered in Paris. they've received two terrorist attacks to uh, 2011 and 2015 both were presumed to be in response to a number of controversial cartoons uh, centered on the uh, the Prophet Muhammad Um so let me, let me start with Matt Worker on this one. Um, we know that journalists in general, especially if you're foreign correspondent or such, uh, have a very dangerous profession. You you don't normally think of a cartoonist as having being in a dangerous profession, but uh, in some circumstances, uh, they are.
4: Yeah, I, I, this speaks, I think, to sort of this new world that we're working in in the media. Um, the Charlie Hebdo thing is actually... A, follow on to something that goes back about ten years now, the the Danish cartoon controversy, where a small magazine in Denmark published a bunch of Islamophobic cartoons, um, and uh, those were then picked up off the internet and used to inflame fundamentalists across the Middle East, and they had riots, and uh, you know, dozens of dozens of people were killed in the riots all over this, these blasphemous cartoons that appeared in Denmark. And Charlie Hebdo is actually a, a, a cartoon magazine that 's been around for forty years doing very edgy uh, a lot of people would consider it sort of tasteless humor for a small audience of sophisticated or unsophisticated depending on your point of view um, parisians and they got swept into the same thing so you know cartoonists have always gener- you 've always generated hate mail, and you have people that will will send you nasty letters to the editor now email or Twitters or whatever. But um, now in this global context, in the age of terrorism, cartooning has become sort of a focal point. And the, the irony is that I think the cartooning is now in some ways been weaponized by these fundamentalist groups that use it to, uh, to inflame their base across sort of the Muslim world. And uh, it's a complicated quandary. I mean, you know, do people in pakistan understand a sense of humor in paris much less salt lake city of course they don't in the same way we don't understand their sense of humor and it's easy to misunderstand it as you know to misconstrue satire as insults mm. and um... you know it's been a very weird number of years for cartoonists to struggle with this question of well, do i draw this because i know that my people in paris are gonna love it or my people in washington dc are think this is going to be very funny but it could so easily be misconstrued by people in in Tehran or Lahore or something like that. But your audience is now global.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, certainly a true point. Uh, Jen Sorensen, I wonder, uh, Charlie Ebdo, one of the things that uh, gets us talking about or thinking about is, are there limits? Should there be limits? Of course, we had free speech and then... And it is certainly emblem, uh, is emblematic of that. Are are there limits beyond which uh, cartoonists should not go?
3: Yeah, I'm often asked this question about you know are there red lines or are there limits and and I I have to say I don't really think of it that way. I I think of it along uh, more more along the lines of you know of my conscience. Like, well, what do I feel is a fair and enlightening cartoon, and you know what uh, or, or what. What does harm i always I always like to say that uh, cartoonists should be like doctors, and that you know do no harm and uh and so i I don't really feel as though i'm I'm personally constrained uh you know in terms of what I can say or what I can't say or that there are really any red lines um, you know I just follow the dictates of my conscience and uh you know if anything, I think you know in the United States probably the, maybe the biggest threat to free speech going forward. I I suspect, especially if we get a more authoritarian president uh, in office, you know, kind of a strongman type, I mean, I think you might start to see more, um, you know, you could see more like corporate lawsuits against cartoonists. Uh, You know, I think that there is a tendency towards extreme rhetoric and and extreme violence now as an answer to, you know, to to political problems, and so... um, you know, I think the issues that I face as a cartoonist in the United States, um, you know, are probably a little different from, uh, you know, the, I guess the, the what's, what's what people, you know, the people at Charlie Hebdo are dealing with. And uh, you know, I've also, I should add, I've, I've really one thing I've encountered a lot this year. I, you know, I've done some cartoons trying to uh, to defend Muslims. You know, from um, all this islamophobic rhetoric, and I have just gotten so much ugly email from from just, re, just really just you know hateful uh people you know against against muslims and uh I think that's been sort of the most alarming feedback I've gotten this year. Uh, yeah I was called a disgusting human being
0: <laughs> for mm. one of
3: my cartoons that tried to point out the distinction between terrorists and and you know the vast majority of, of muslims and uh, so I think that's been sort of unsettling for me.
1: I just have a couple of minutes left. I, w- I want to address this with Pat Bagley. And I wonder, uh, do you ever have temptation for self-censorship? Do you, do you get, you know, hammered on some issue and you have to counteract a tendency to say, I don't want to go there again?
2: Oh, sure. You know, occasionally I'll do a cartoon. I'll, I'll, I, You know, I think, well, maybe, I'm just being too comfortable and, you know, maybe I should push the limits. And, you know, I'll do a cartoon that I know will just give my editor heartburn. Um and I'll think this is just going too far and then I'll show it to the editor and I'll go, Oh, yeah, okay, sure, fine. And that'll surprise me. Um yeah, but I do have to you know, watch myself and not get too comfortable in my um you know, just doing easy funny cartoons.
1: Mm-hmm. I want to do, uh, we just have about a minute and a half left. I want to do a lightning round uh, final word to start with Matt Worker. Uh, what uh, what, are you, what are you looking to next? I guess the presidential primaries, or it would be a rich vein?
4: Well, yeah, I mean, the big news last night was Trump not winning Iowa. So yeah. I'm sitting here as we're talking, starting to sketch up uh, Donald Trump carving a giant Napoleon statue of himself. And there's mm-hmm. a big thing beneath it saying, winning, winning, winners, always win, win, win. And then there's a big crack go- through it that says loser. Um, so I haven't quite worked it out. But yeah, or something there.
1: We'll look for that in Politico. Uh, we'll uh J- that, yeah. Jen. Jen Sorensen, what uh, what's coming up uh, next?
3: <laughs> well, I had to file my cartoon right before the Iowa caucuses, and so I, you know, I just did one about Trump's uh, supposed support among some union members. But uh, you know, going forward, I think you know it's probably time for me to, to start looking at the uh, you know the, Hillary versus you know Sanders that that's that conflict among the left, and uh, I guess, uh, unfortunately, I'm going to have to start doing some cartoons about Ted Cruz, who i I kind of avoided so far, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, you know, it, it's looking like he's going to be figuring prominently in the months ahead.
1: Yeah. Uh, and Pat Bagley, what's coming up next?
2: Yeah, I'm going to be working on something about, about Cruz, because I think that he is kind of the big story coming out of Iowa, anyway. Um, you know, the religious vote that's propelled him to where he is right now. Uh, I thought that he was a bigger threat than most people, and I've been thinking that for a long time because he's got the narrative that if you nominate a moderate, you're going to lose. And his whole selling point is that he's a true conservative, Uh person I think he's a lizard person because he's just... He's just not really human.
1: <laughs> so it will will we see? Might might see a lizard in your car too next? I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, we've been talking with uh, Salt Lake Tribune's Pat Bagley, politicals Matt Worker, and Jen Sorensen, uh, who you can read locally in the Salt Lake City Weekly. Um, and uh, thanks to each of you, appreciate it taking the time. Thanks, a lot,
2: Tom. thanks, Tom. Thank you.
1: And we'll have links to their work um, on our website. I should mention this episode is part of the Pulitzer Prize Centennial Campfires Initiative in partnership with Utah Humanities and Salt Lake Tribune and KCPW. And a couple of Pat Bagley events, we'll have that information up on our website as well. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio.
0: The time now is 10 o'clock.